When I was a young person, a while ago, a long time ago, I had a very clear picture of what Judgment Day looked like. I don't know where the picture came from. I, I don't remember hearing a specific sermon about it. Uh, maybe it was too many TV preachers got to me. Or maybe too many chick comic book tracks. How many of you, did any of you grow up with chick tracks? Nobody. Oh, Terry. oh Terry did. <laughs> Man, it, they, I'm still seeing a counselor about them. Uh, but, but the scene is, is clear. Me, it, it looks a little bit like Matthew 25, but it's, uh, but it's me standing before the awful throne of judgment and this disembodied voice demanding to know if my name appears in the book of life. And whether or not my name appeared in the book of life depended on my beliefs and how I would answer some very specific questions. Like, was I born again? Have I accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior? Have I gotten down on my knees and recited the sinner's prayer after repenting of my sins? What is my position on abortion or evolution or sexuality? Did I root for Auburn or Alabama? <laughs> Wait, I, I don't think that's in the book. That, that not, that's not in the uh, I was scared to death about having the wrong answer and the eternal consequences for the wrong answers. So when I got to college and I started reading the gospel far away from my home church, I was gobsmacked when I read this parable on my own. Because it didn't look like what was in my head. First of all, Jesus calls this scene a parable. A teaching story. It's not a documentary. Secondly, the ruler in the parable doesn't ask any of those questions that I was panicking about. He doesn't ask any questions about belief at all. He simply observes how people treated other people. And that when those described as sheep treated other people with grace and mercy and tenderness and compassion, they were treating him that way. And the goats, when they didn't treat other people with grace and mercy and tenderness and compassion, didn't do it to him. And the third thing that startled me was realizing that in the parable, no one, neither the sheep nor the goats, recognized Jesus in the poor and the hungry and the outsider. Everyone, sheep and goat, asked of Jesus, when did we see you? 
And Jesus' answer never says anything about seeing or believing. His answer is about doing. When you fed the least of these, my siblings, when you gave drink, when you welcomed, when you clothed, when you took care, when you visited, you did it to me. And this parable is behind so much of our ministries. I know in my own life, this parable is one of the reasons that I think when I see someone, I, I need to remember to see the image of God, or I need to remember to see Christ in them. And yet, the people who are the sheep in this parable, I always feel like the goats kind of get a rough, uh, a rough judgment here, but oh, yeah. <laughs> um, the people who are the sheep in this parable they do take care of the poor and feed the hungry and visit the lonely, but they don't do it because they see Jesus in any of those people. The sheep don't do that work because they see Jesus in those people's eyes and faces. Instead, I think that they serve the poor and feed the hungry because they see with the eyes of Jesus. They see the world the way Jesus sees it. So it's not, it's not just about seeing Jesus in the world, it's looking through Jesus' eyes into the world. And when we look through Jesus' eyes into the world, we see everyone as our sibling, our sister, our brother, our seven billion siblings. Even the most unlikely people. Even the people that we would just rather not be our siblings at all are our siblings through Jesus' eyes. And when we look that way, amazing things can happen. Our former bishop, Susan Morrison, when we were in the former Troy Conference, told a story about a woman in one of the churches that she served before she became a, a bishop. And this was a woman who had one arm that was, uh, had, when she was born, one arm was dramatically shorter than the other. She was used to people glancing and, look, and just looking away, right? But once, one day she was in the supermarket and there was a little girl with Down's syndrome there whose eyes were fixed on that shorter arm. And then the little girl came up to her and said, is it broken? And she said, no. And then the little girl's eyes got really big and she said, does it hurt? And she answered, no. And then the little girl said, can I touch it? And she said, yes. So the girl reached out to touch it and then stood up on her tiptoes and gave it a kiss and said, there, that'll make it better. And the woman said, thank you, it did. Right. So it's a, it's a little story, and for me, it's a story of people seeing with the eyes of Jesus. This little girl seeing someone who, who maybe was hurt, for whom she was concerned, seeing with the eyes of Jesus, this woman needs a kiss on her arm from me. And the woman seeing this little girl's curiosity, not out of frustration or out of her own hurt, but welcoming... <laughs> Her curiosity, welcoming her love, also seeing 
with the eyes of Jesus. Whenever you reach out to even the least of these, Jesus said, you see me, you do it to me. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, under whose banner we gather here at Harvard Epworth, wrote in the 1780s that only two things could kill a church. One was wealth, and the other was neglect of the poor. I understand that that in, in this way, that wealth tends to make us forget that we need to rely on God. Remember last week's sermon about the widow and her two coins. Neglect of the poor means that we've stopped seeing with and through Jesus' eyes. We've stopped seeing as Jesus sees. We've stopped seeing others as siblings as people who could be us, people who are us. The French historian de Tocqueville said something, wrote something similar, though not from a Christian perspective. Mm -hmm. Kind of a secular guy. From a secular perspective, where he said, America is great because she is good. If she ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. I usually have the car radio on when I'm driving. And I don't normally yell at the radio. Well, sometimes. But I remember driving. I, drove, I yell at drivers. I, I do that. Uh, but I don't normally yell at the radio. But several years ago, uh, I was in Vermont and listening to Vermont Public Radio. And on the news was... As always, arguments in Congress about the budget. And there was a recording of a representative from Louisiana who rose to address the issue of providing school lunches, free school lunches to poor students. Kids who likely don't get another hot meal during the day. And he wanted to cut federal funding for the school lunch programs around the nation, and he was impatient at the amount of debate that had occurred, so he stood up and sneered. My friends, he said, we can play this compassion game all day long, but it isn't getting us anywhere. I'm seeing a lot of eye rolling. <laughs> I almost drove off the road. I was furious. Wait a minute, I shouted at the radio. Jesus told us that the compassion game is the only game that matters. That anywhere compassion won't take us isn't worth going to. If we cease to be compassionate, if we cease to be good, in the words of de Tocqueville, then we cease to be great. Whenever you didn't care for the least of these, you didn't care for me. When we see with the eyes of Jesus, amazing things can happen. 
When we stop seeing with the eyes of compassion, terrible things can happen. And do. And do. And I've thought of that this week as things continue to rage in Israel, Palestine, Gaza. Every peoples in that place, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Arab, Palestinian, every people in that place bears such a history of pain and trauma and oppression. In these weeks, we have seen how when we blow our pain out on others, it has devastating effects all around. It makes everyone's pain worse. Please don't hear what we're saying this morning as a facile critique or as approval for either side or saying for any of that. I know this is terribly complicated and that it's, it's hard to figure out where to go next to get to peace in this land that is so holy to so many people. I don't have any solutions either. But there are some things that I am sure of. And one is that a real solution will only be possible if people can see each other with compassion, if they can see others' pain and recognize it as their own. The Jewish liberation theologian Mark Ellis says that the post-Holocaust phrase, never again, only works if it means never again for everyone instead of never again for us. So it's made me think this week of a book that I've read. Every once in a while I read a book that sort of alters the way I look at the world. I'm never quite the same afterwards. And for me, one of those books is called My Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma and a Pathway to Healing. It's written by Resma Menikam, a therapist in Minnesota. And he writes about how we hold trauma in our bodies, our own trauma and the trauma of generations before us, what's happened to our ancestors. And if we don't process it, not just emotionally, also physically, we tend to blow it out on others. Menachem calls that dirty pain. Now, this is not a foreign, that concept is not foreign to me. I used to work as a physical therapist in a chronic pain clinic, and I have all kinds of stories of how people's uh, trauma experiences get lodged in their bodies and what it means for them when you heal the physical part of that in their own healing. What caught me in Menachem's book is his description of U.S. history. And he talks about the European settlers who came to the New World and how they came and here inflicted untold suffering on Native American folk, on African slaves, sometimes on each other. And he talks about how each of them came here, yes, with resilience and yes, with determination for a better life, and also bearing in their bodies and spirits the trauma of hundreds of years of violence and oppression and torture from the Middle Ages in, in Europe. 
so that when they established laws to punish each other, other settlers here, other Europeans here, they used a lot of those same torture techniques. And certainly they inflicted, inflicted it on slaves and on Native Americans here. They blew their trauma out onto others, and our nation is still struggling to recover from that. They wouldn't have used these words, but they came to the, they came to the new world with a never-again mindset for themselves. They didn't understand that to apply to everyone. That to be compassionate meant to see not only their own people, through the eyes of Jesus, but to see everyone through the eyes of Jesus. Even in the midst of the devastation in Gaza, we hear stories of hope that are stories of ordinary people, shopkeepers and peace activists and farmers and kibbutz leaders, people on all sides of the conflict who somehow understand that the only solution is to get beyond the narratives of pain and revenge, or rather to work through the pain to realize that revenge only leads to more tragedy and more pain. None of these folk have any easy solutions either, but they believe in all their being that never again must mean never again for everyone. They see others' pain as their own pain. They see with the eyes of compassion. And again and again in his book, Resma Menachem talks about his work, particularly with police officers. Mm -hmm. And as he works with them to, to heal their own histories of trauma, they too are able to have compassion in the work that they do and the ways that that offers healing and the, the ways that they can see with new eyes because of what they've learned in themselves. And that's able to bring healing to the communities. On Wednesday, uh, in the newsletter, I put a quote from... Parker Palmer, the Quaker poet, philosopher, theologian. And he talked about how when we process pain and when we don't process pain, our hearts break. In both situations. In both situations. But when we've processed our pain, our hearts break open to be able to be open to the realities of other people's pain and see ourselves in them. When we don't process it, our hearts shatter like glass shards, what Resma calls dirty pain. dirty pain, when it blows up and the shards hurt all around. That's what we learned in seminary a million years ago in our pastoral counseling classes that hurt people hurt people. And so when Jesus is talking to the crowds, he's talking to ordinary folks, ordinary farmers, ordinary shopkeepers, ordinary parents, the people that we hear stories from in Israel, Palestine, Gaza, that bring us hope are also the stories of ordinary people, people like you, people like me, 
people like the neighbors who live near you. And so we wonder, how do we see each other through Jesus' eyes? How do we see with compassion that recognizes others' pain as our own? How do we serve with a love that doesn't belittle or objectify, a love that connects, a love that recognizes our common humanity, our common spark of divinity? Because we believe this is our calling, that we might see the world through Jesus' eyes, that we might live in a way that proclaims that never again applies to everyone and that we might do that with persistence and patience and dogged determination that grace and love and healing are not just possible. They are the point. We may not see Jesus, but we see with Jesus' eyes. And that makes all the difference. Our next hymn is one that I, we love this, this hymn for the last Sunday of the year. I was there to hear your morning cry, and it follows Jesus' life from birth to resurrection. Number 2051. Yeah. 